while the children leave and pastor gets ready. Well, again, good to see you this morning, and we're glad you're here with us. Uh, my name is Jake Patton. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, again, that was Tanner Crum, who's one of our interns leading uh, us in worship this morning. Again, welcome to you if you're, if you're visiting with us. We're continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of John, and we're picking up in John chapter 14. So we're going to start at the beginning of this chapter we're actually going to read the first 14 verses, but my sermon is really going to focus on the first seven verses, but we're going to read through all 14 verses of this first section of this chapter. So John 14, 1 through 14, if you don't have your Bible, you'll find the text. It's printed for you in your bulletin. Before we read the text, let me start here. Most of us, regardless of whatever religious background we have. Maybe we grew up in the church, or maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever come to church. And if that's the case, um, we're really glad you're here, and we'll always save a seat for you. Um, Thanks for coming. Um, But regardless of of your religious background, most of us have either heard or we know this verse by heart. All right, so to get the juices flowing, say it with me now. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the Usually when we hear this verse quoted, oftentimes it's in the context of a theological discussion or debate. And here's the debate. Some will say, don't all roads lead to God? Don't all religions get us back to the one same true God that lives and reigns in heaven? And what some Christians will do is they will quote this verse, verse 6 in chapter 14, that Jesus is the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That's the proof text that Christians will use to say, actually, that theory is not correct. What I want to suggest this morning is that before this verse was a proof text for, you know, proving a theological point, this verse was a balm, a salve, an encouragement given in a time of great conflict, great unrest. It was meant to encourage the disciples. The context of this passage is, is not a theological debate. Okay, we're not dealing with like a pluralistic society where people are, are, are polemically arguing against each other. Um, the context of John 14 is chaos, utter chaos. The disciples are confused. They're full of fear. They don't know exactly what, what up is from down. And then this is where Jesus enters the story in his love and mercy. And in hopes of encouraging these disciples, he says, Know this, bank on this, I'm the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. They were meant to be encouraged, so let's, let's be encouraged with them. This is John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we do ask that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would unstop our ears, turn our hearts of stone and iron into hearts of flesh and into fertile ground that takes your word, this seed, and bears much fruit. Cause the scales to fall off our eyes. Give us true understanding. Give us true belief. And again, we ask this in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed, or, or maybe you've been annoyed um, by this particular phenomenon, maybe a culture, culture will take a word, and they will overuse it, and they will use it so much, it actually loses its original meaning. You know, take, for example, the adjective Awesome. Is everything really that awesome? We use that one a lot, right? This world is full of awesomeness. Everything is awesome. Here's what one of my friends posted this past week on Facebook. It made me chuckle, so you better as well. Here's what he says. He says, okay, new product idea. Who wants to back me? It's called, and this is in quotations, it's called the super, super's in quotations, the superhuman shock collar, Okay. Anytime anyone unnecessarily puts the word super in front of their adjectives, they get a good healthy zap from the collar. Examples, I am super excited about zap. That was super awesome zap, right? Words that we often use and we use so much, they they, kind of tend to lose their punch. They, They tend to lose their meaning. One of those words for us this morning is the word belief or believe. And um, this is a word that we say and we try to encourage others with. We say, hey, this is what you need to do with Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. And we try to stir ourselves up, encourage ourselves. We say, we need to believe more in Jesus. Followers of Jesus are called what? They are called believers, right? What do you mean when you use the word believe? And what do I mean when I say the word believe? But more importantly, what does Jesus mean? when he says that we are to believe and believe upon him. This is kind of a a crude definition, but kind of get this into your head and and get this working, you know, through your mind this morning. But here's what believing is. Um, Believing takes knowledge, and oftentimes we think knowledge and belief are synonyms. They're the same thing. They're not. Belief takes knowledge, takes knowing something, but then it also means acting upon it, trusting in it leaning on it. And in our case this morning, we are to believe and trust in Jesus. So that means knowing Him, 
But then it also means leaning on Him, trusting in Him, taking Him at His word, believing in Him, okay? So there's a knowing and there's a doing. That's, that's, that's real belief, okay? And if we're honest, belief is very easy. Uh, belief in Jesus is uh, when, when times are good and when life is free from trials and sufferings, but it's when it gets hard, it's when life gets difficult, that's when it's really hard to exercise faith uh, in Jesus. Six times in this passage, he tells the disciples and us as readers, we are to believe, 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 and, and sometimes in the imperative, you must do this. It's primary. You must believe. Um, but like I said at the beginning, the, the believers, um, the disciples at this point in John 14, um, things are not easy. Um, things are very difficult. And, and I want to camp here for just a couple minutes. I usually don't spend this much time in the intro, but I really want us to get into the shoes or the sandals, per se, of the disciples this morning. What is the cause of their great concern? Why are they so confused? Why are they so full of fear? And it's two things. It's twofold. The first is this. For the last three years, they have been following this Jesus character all over the Middle East, and they, they've seen some incredible things. Bread and wine being multiplied, blind getting their sight back. Jesus saying, this kingdom of God is now at hand. Momentum is building. His reputation is building. Worship is building. And then we get to the end of chapter 13 and our passage this morning. And here's what we find out, that Judas is already in the midst of his betraying of Jesus for a bag of silver. So there goes one of the twelve. Peter puts his foot in his mouth and says, Jesus, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, well, actually, you know, before the dawn, you're going to deny me three times. So this leader among disciples, even his faith is being shaken. And, what, and what's more, Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm going away. And where I'm going, you cannot follow now. And if we were there, we don't know the rest of the story. We would feel that unrest. We would feel that concern, that confusion too. Wait a minute. Well, then what about everything that's happened over these last three years? It sounds like everything is just going right down the tubes. Is this the end? Are we done? Were we duped? Were we fooled? That's one cause for concern. Um, here's the second one, and this one's a little bit more subtle. What Jesus is asking the disciples and the readers of this passage to do is something very stark and very difficult. He's saying, look, the Father and I are one. And just as you've believed in the Father, this Father of Abraham, this Father of Isaac, this Father of Jacob, this God who was the God of Jeremiah and Isaiah, that faith that you put in Him, you must also put that faith in me. Your spiritual life, the way to heaven, the way to the Father, the truth of the Father, the life in the Father, you have to bet everything on me. Because I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. If you've seen him, you've seen me. We're inseparable in that way. And we know the rest of the story. We know who Jesus is. We're convinced of who he is. But you've got to understand, the disciples are hearing this for the first time. They're, they're having to make these decisions on the fly. They're having to go, okay, this man who is flesh and blood that I see before me, I've got to bank and bet everything on this person. He is my way. He is my truth. He is my life. I love how one commentator puts it. He says it better than I could. He says, it's one thing for the disciples to have faith or belief in the God who acted in the days of old. It's another thing entirely 
to have faith in the Jesus who stands before them, especially when he is even then being betrayed by one of his followers and about to be denied three times by the chief of them, abandoned by the rest, and crucified by his enemies. The call for faith in these circumstances is not to utter a platitude. In other words, it's not easy. What Jesus is asking his disciples to do is the exact opposite of what your financial planner tells you to do. Your financial planner says what? Diversify. Don't put all of your financial eggs in one basket because if you do and that thing goes south, you're going south. Jesus says you've got to put all your spiritual eggs in one basket. That's me. You need to get reckless with me, with your faith and with your belief. Why? Because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. We've got to bet it all on this man, everything, all on him. So that's where our disciples are. Confusion, fear, panic. They don't know up from down. And again, these are words of encouragement. These are meant to encourage them, to lift them out of this despair. And so I, I, I want to look at Jesus as, as the way to the Father. These are my three points. He's the way to the Father. Jesus is the truth of the Father. But he's also the life in the Father. The way, the truth, and the life. So if you're keeping notes, those are the points. All right, so what does it mean that Jesus is the way to the Father? Well, this can mean many things. And some people have, have assumed this to mean, well, Jesus is a declarer of the way. He is going to tell us about the way. And we think about people in the New Testament like John the Baptist who would say, and quoting Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, repent, and be baptized. And Jesus did something very similar. Mark 1 begins with Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. He declares the way by his words to anyone who would hear and while that's true, Jesus does do that. That's not what Jesus is getting at here in verse 6 in chapter 14. It's something much bigger. Others have thought this to mean, well, you know, maybe he's, he's not a declarer of the way, but he's a guide, he's a leader, he's a teacher along the way. I mean, after all, Jesus did say, you know, the disciples, you know, put down your nets and what? Come follow me. And for three years along this path, along this way, he did teach, he instructed he gave lessons. He taught them. And that's very true. But again, that's not what Jesus is getting at here in this passage. He is saying, I am the way to the Father. A way, let's think about it this way, a way is something that connects two people. And in our story this morning, the two people are what? Sinners and God the Father, the Father's house. And the way is what gets A to B right? That's what a way is. If you're going to Atlanta, you need a means of transportation. You need a vehicle, right? And in the spiritual sense this morning, Jesus is saying, your vehicle is not a thing. It's a person. It's me. I am the way to the Father. Let's kind of go Pilgrim's Progress for a minute here. Imagine you have come to a, a fork in the road, and to the left is the way to the Father's house, and it's a climb, it escalates. It goes up. But the way to your right is the way to death. It's the way of judgment. It's the way of wrath. It's the way of hell. And as you approach this fork on the road, you find that the way to heaven, to the Father's house, is blocked to you. You cannot get on that way. And why is that? Is it because God is cruel? No, it's because this is how we show up. We show up in rebellion to God, dead spiritually 
enemies, uttering blasphemies against God. This is how we all show up, rebellious to Him. The only way that is open to us is the way of death and judgment. And in our despair, before we take another step, Jesus shows up and says, hold on. If you will but believe in me, this way in which you deserve, this way in which you ought to go, I'm going to take that way for you. I will take the Father's wrath. I will take the judgment. I'll take what you deserve. I will travel that road on your behalf so that you don't have to go that way. And when Christ does that for you, what happens on the way that is the left, on the way that is to the Father? Suddenly, it is open to you. And in our excitement and in our zeal, we approach the way only to find that it is too sharp and inclined to climb. We don't have the strength. We don't have the abilities to go that way either. And it's then that Jesus shows up again and says, now that I've traveled this way for you, you also need my help here. You need an ability. You need a holiness that is not your own. You need a fresh pair of legs. You can't scale this yourself. Climb on. And I will be your vehicle. I will be your way. I will take you to my Father's house. Think about this. At the end of chapter 13, Peter and Jesus are having this discussion about his denial. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, where I am going, you cannot follow for now. Do you know what way he was going? Do you know what errand he was on? He was going down the way of judgment the way of death, the way of wrath for Peter, for Thomas, for Philip, for those who would believe in him. Why? So that they wouldn't have to go that way. And he says, no, you're not going to go that way with me. I've got to go by myself. Only then to what? Open up the way to the Father's house, to which he says, if you believe in me, if you'll put your trust in me, if you'll rest in me, I will take you to my Father's house. I will be your way. And again, this is not a theological argument. This is meant to encourage the disciples to say, look, even though I'm leaving temporarily, it's to provide something permanent for you. It may feel funny now. It may feel stressful now. But know that I'm leaving for a purpose. I'm going the way of wrath and judgment, the way of death, so that I might be able to take you to my Father's house. And here's the good news. You don't have to find a way yourself. You don't have to rest in your own abilities. You don't have to create your own way to the Father's house. Jesus says, I will do that for you. I will literally be your way. Believe in me. Rest in me. Let that encourage you. He doesn't stop there. He says not only is he the way to the Father, but he's also the truth of the Father. Now, some have thought this to mean that, well, Obviously, Jesus knows the truth, and this is, this is true, and that premise is, is correct. There are a number of conversations in the New Testament where there's a conversation going on, but supernaturally, Jesus knows what they're thinking. The text actually says he knows their thoughts. He knows what's really true, what's really going on in conversations, and, and, and that happens, but that's not what Jesus is trying to communicate here in verse 6. Other people have assumed this to mean, well, you know, yes, you know, maybe Jesus knows the truth, but it means that he's an orthodox teacher, that everything he says is correct. He's theologically watertight. He's never going to deceive in what he teaches or communicates. And to that we would say, absolutely, that too is true. 
But again, it doesn't get at the heart at what's happening here in this passage. Jesus says, no, I am the truth of the Father. And what this means is that long ago in the Lord's sovereign plan, he, he decided to take himself, which is a spirit, eternal, and, and somehow take everything that was him, light of very light, God of very God, and wrap it in flesh and blood and make it into a human being, a human that was going to be light of very light, God of very God, in whom there was going to be no darkness. Someone who spoke and who who said that they can do what they promised to do, you can bank on them. Why? Because this person is no mere person. This person is God himself. John says at the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh. Truth took on a human form. I love what one commentator says. He says, Jesus narrates God. Jesus is the narration of God. And in Jesus, there is no lie. There is no deception. There is no darkness. And and this is where we begin to sympathize a little bit more with, with Philip's comment. It's a comment, but really there's a question behind it. What, what does he say? He says, Jesus, show us the Father, and, and then we'll believe. What is he really saying? What is he really asking? He's asking, how do we know? You just told us that, that you can be our way, that you can take us to this Father's house. But how do we know we can bank on you? How do we know that we can trust you? And here's the promise. What stands before you is no mere man. No human, have, human being has the right to say what Jesus just said. No one should say that. No one could say that except for him. He is God incarnate, light of very light. In him, there is no deception. There is no darkness. He cannot lie. If he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen because he's God, because he's perfect. He's reliable. You can bank on what he says. He's the way. He's the truth, but he's also the life in the Father. Now, again, some have thought this to mean, well, You know, um, this means that Jesus is the creator uh, of all things. And we would say, yes, that is very true. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the Trinity actually created everything we see and everything we experience now, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active in creation. But again, verse 6 means something a little bit more than that. Others have thought, well, Jesus then is, is the perfect embodiment of life, of humanity, um, he's supposed to show us, you know, what, what faith looks like under the Father. And to that I would say, yes, he does, he does do that. He shows us how, how to exercise faith in, the, in God's promises perfectly, without doubt, in spirit and in letter. But again, what, what he's saying here in verse 6 means something more than just that. It's this, is that he is the life. Consider two things with me on this last point. The first is this, and maybe something like this has happened to you before with one of your children or one of your friend's children, but this was recently with me and and one of my kids. My child was enjoying a hot dog and and with a smile on her face looked up and just said, aren't hot dogs the best? And like a good parent, I kind of smile out of the side of my face and, you know, they're there. Like, but what am I thinking on the inside? Kid, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait until you have a ribeye, right? Now we're talking good, right? But in their mind, hot dog is, is, is top shelf, 
right? And to us, that's really slumming it. Maybe. I don't know. Um, for others of us, it's, you know, vacation season. Maybe you're coming off of vacation. Maybe you're here on vacation. I don't know. Or maybe you've got some planned. At some point, usually about two or three days into vacation, you, you'll say something like this or, or give a similar sentiment. The feet finally go up. You start to kind of feel relaxed. The hands go behind the head, and you say, isn't this the life? Man, this is living. You've got a beach scene out here, maybe a mountain scene or a cityscape, whatever floats your boat, right? And you say something to that effect, man, isn't this the life? Well, in a similar way, like, like I did to my child over the hot dog, God says to us in a moment like that, like, this Oscar Mayer vacation life that you're talking about, oh, child, they're there. You haven't seen anything yet. And when we talk about our life, we, we think, you know, from birth until death, that's life. And, and some of it's good, and some of it's great, some of it's glorious, and some of it's really hard. Well, what Jesus here is trying to say to us is, is, kids, friends, disciples, you have seen nothing yet. When we get later into some of the, the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, Paul is going to call Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. We know that Lazarus was raised back from death, but he wasn't raised to resurrection life. When Jesus died and when he went in the tomb, three days later, when the Spirit revived him and gave him this resurrection life, he, according to Paul, was the first fruits. He got to experience this resurrection life, this life that is to come, that if we could see it and wrap our minds around it, we would go, our vacation, this life here, that's nothing. This resurrection life that is to come, that we see embodied in Jesus after his death, Man, that's something. That is something. What Jesus here is saying is, yes, I've helped create life. I'm the perfect embodiment of human life. But more than that, I am the resurrection life. You've never seen life like this before. You've never experienced life like this before. And you disciples who are so afraid and so scared and so full of concern, Hear this. This life is not all that there is. There's another one's coming. This one's like hot dogs. It's meh. But the one that's coming, oh man, it's going to blow your mind. That's the life that he is. That's the life that he brings to those who would believe and trust in him. Let me close with this because I want to get back to our word, you know, believe uh, or belief. And I want to step out of our passage for just a moment. I want to fast forward to Acts chapter 2. And here's the context of Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost, and this promised helper, this spirit that we're going to talk about more next week, that's next week's passage, um, has been promised by Jesus, comes, lands on the disciples, and Peter makes this speech at Pentecost, short, great sermon, great speech. And you remember what happens? One of the greatest mass conversions in biblical history, somewhere above over 3,000 people are converted after one sermon. We, we could all aspire to that as, as pastors and ministers. One sermon. And, and the question is this, how did Peter get from denying Jesus three times, his, his faith being shaken, 
Our context this morning, John chapter 14, how does he get from there to knock down, killer sermon, powerful, wild, in a good way for the kingdom of God? How do we get to Acts chapter 2? Something had to happen between John 14 and Acts chapter 2. What happened to Peter? What happened to the disciples? Because it's not just Peter. All the other disciples, they get dangerous in a good way for the kingdom of God. Something happened. What was it? I'd like to suggest it was simply belief. In John chapter 14, we hear that Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the truth of the Father. He is life in the Father. That's gone in their ears. That's now information. But how do they know it's true? They doubt. They're just going, man, this, this, this looks so bad. This doesn't look like this is going to right itself. And Jesus, because he's a great teacher and because he's patient, he just says, just wait and see. Wait and see what happens. And what happens? He's hung on the cross. He's crucified. He gives up his spirit. He dies. He's placed in a tomb for three days. He's confirmed dead. And then after three days, what happens? The power of the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus and brings him back to life, not to the life that you and I know, but to this resurrection life. And then Jesus goes to heaven, the end, story's over. No, what does he do? He shows that life to his disciples. He appears to them, to Cleopas and his friends, to Mary. He even says to Thomas, who doubts here, touch my side and see. Look, this is real. This isn't imaginary. You're not dreaming. Touch and see. Believe. And then after that, what happens? Jesus ascends. Where does Jesus go? And where is Jesus right now? Is he not in his father's house? Did he not go to his father? In other words, he said, I'm the way to the father's house. I'm the truth of the father. I'm the life in the father. Now, can you, can you believe me now? Everything I said came true. I went your way so that I could take you my way. And my body did not stay in the grave. It went to be with our Father. And the reason why I have left you is to go prepare a place for you. I've got everything covered. I am your way. And I am your truth. I can be reliable. You can trust me because I am God incarnate. I cannot lie. The grave couldn't hold me. I told you. I went to my father. I didn't stay. You can trust me. And as good as this life can be sometimes, guess what? There's a greater one that's coming. It's this resurrection life. And if you will but believe, if you will take this information and trust and act on it, rest in the work of Christ. Act forgiven. Act like he loves you more than you love him. That's okay. He loves you with that great of a love. If people but believe and act on it, guess what? That's when we, that's when believers get really dangerous in a good kind of way for the kingdom of God. What unlocks that? Is simply this, belief. To know and act. Man, that's something I need to hear. And again, if, if you're, this is your first time in the church, that's something you need to hear too. That's what he wants to do with you. He wants you to take you to his father's house and give you resurrection life. All you have to do is believe in him. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father, for this word and for this mystery and this secret, we thank you. And pray, as, as James, James tells us, that once we've heard this scripture, that we don't turn like we do in the mirror and forget the image that we have just seen. Um, but Lord, would it truly change us? Would it simplify things? Would it help us to direct us in, in, in the right paths, in the right way? Thank you that we don't have to come up with a way of our own. Thank you that we don't have to trust in other gods, that we can trust in you. And thank you that life in you is life to the fullest. Take us home with you. Take us to our Father's house, all for your glory and all for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.